Paramatmane Namaha, Yatart Gita, Srimad Bhagavad Gita. Chapter 18 The Yoga of Renunciation This is the last chapter of the Gita, the first half of which is devoted to the resolution of several questions posed by Arjun whereas the latter half is the conclusion which dwells upon the many blessings that flow from this sacred work. Chapter 17 classified and elucidated food, penance, yagya, charity, and faith. In the same context, however, the different forms of renunciation, or sannyas, have yet not been touched upon. What is the motive for whatever man does? Who is the motivator, God or nature? The question was raised earlier, but the present chapter again sheds light on it. Likewise, the subject of the quadratype, or four-part division of men, was broached earlier, but the present chapter again takes it up and closely analyzes its character within the framework of nature. Then, at the end, Numerous advantages that ensue from the Gita are illuminated. After having listened to Krishna's categorization of various subjects in the previous chapter, Arjuna now also desires to be enlightened on the different forms of renunciation, sannyas, and relinquishment, tyag. Sasya Mahabaho Tattva Michami Veditum Tyagasya Charishi Kesha Prithakeshi Nishodana Arjun said, O oh, the mighty armed! O Rishikesh, master of the senses and slayer of demons, I am curious to learn the principles of relinquishment and of renunciation. Total abandonment is renunciation, a state in which even will and merits of action cease to be, and prior to which there is only endless giving up of attachment for fulfillment of the spiritual quest. There are two questions here. Arjuna wants to know the essence of renunciation as well as the essence of relinquishment. Thereupon, Yogeshwar Krishna says, Kamyanam karmanam nyasam Sanyasam kavayo vidu Sarva karma phalatyagam Prahustyagam vichakshana The Lord said, 
Whereas numerous scholars use renunciation for the giving up of coveted deeds, many others of mature judgment use relinquishment to name the abnegation of the fruits of all action. Yajam doshavadityeke Karma prahurmani shinaha Yadnyadanattapah karma Natyajamiti chapare While many erudite men insist that since all actions are vile, they ought to be forsaken, other scholars proclaim that deeds such as yagya, charity, and penance ought not to be forsaken. After thus submitting varied opinions on the problem, the Yogeshwar advances his own definitive view. Nishchayam Srinume Tatra Tyage Bharata Sattama Tyago Hi Purusha Vyagra Trividhasam Prakirtitaha Listen, O the best of Bharat, Arjun, to my notion of renunciation and of how, O you, the unmatched among men, this renunciation is said to be of three kinds. Yajyadana <laughs> Natyajam karyamevatat Yagyodanam tapaschaiva Pavanani manishina Rather than forsaking them, deeds such as yagya, charity, and penance ought certainly to be undertaken as a duty, for yagya, charity, and penance are deeds that redeem men of wisdom. Krishna has thus submitted four prevalent thoughts. First, that coveted deeds should be forsworn. Second, that the fruits of all actions should be given up. Third, that all actions should be relinquished for they are all blemished. And fourth, that it is wrong to forego yagya, charity, and penance. Expressing his accord with one of these thoughts, Krishna says that it is also his conclusive view that yagya, charity, and penance are not to be forsaken. This illustrates how divergent views on the question were current at Krishna's time also out of which one was true. Even today, there are many views. When a sage makes his advent or arrival in the world, 
he isolates and puts forward that which is the most salutary among the many varying doctrines. All great souls have done this, and Krishna has done the same. Instead of advocating a new way, he only supports and expounds that which is true among many accepted views. Sangam tyaktva phalani cha Kartavyani time partha Nishchitam matamuttamam It is my considered belief, O Parth, that these deeds, as also all others, ought certainly to be accomplished after forsaking attachment and desire for the fruits of labor. Replying to Arjuna's question, Krishna then examines relinquishment. Niyatasya tu Karmano no papadyate Mohatasya parityaga Tamasa parikirtita And since the requisite action ought not to be abandoned, forsaking it out of some misconception is deemed as renunciation of the nature of ignorance, tamas. According to Krishna, the ordained essential action is only one, the performance of yajna. The Yogeshwar has reverted to and stressed the ordained mode time and again, lest the seeker should deviate from the right path. And now he declares that it is improper to abandon this ordained action. Forsaking such action out of some delusion is thus said to be relinquishment of the diabolical kind, that is, of the nature of tamas. The deed that ought to be done and the ordained action are the same, and giving it up out of involvement in objects of sensual pleasure is morally improper. The man who abandons such action is doomed to rebirth in low forms, for he has suppressed the impulse for divine adoration. Krishna next speaks about relinquishment that is tainted by passion and moral blindness, that is of the nature of rajas. karma <laughs> He who rashly foregoes action under the assumption that all of it is grievous or out of fear of physical suffering, 
is deprived of the merits of his relinquishment. One who is incapable of worship and who casts off action because of his apprehension of physical pain is reckless and morally in error, and his relinquishment of the nature of passion or rajas fails to bring him the ultimate repose of mind that should be the end of relinquishment. Karma Niyatam Kriyate Arjuna Sangam Tyaktva Phalam Chaiva Satyagasatviko Only that relinquishment is esteemed righteous, O Arjun, which is ordained and practiced with the conviction that doing it after having forsaken attachment and fruits of labor is a moral commitment. So only the ordained deed is to be done, and all else has to be discarded. However, shall we go on doing it endlessly? Or will there be a point when it too is given up? Speaking of this, Krishna now points out the way of relinquishment that is good and worthwhile. Nadveshta kushalam karma kushale nanushajjate Ifted with flawless moral excellence and freedom from doubt, one who neither abhors deeds that are unpropitious, nor is enamored of those that are propitious, is wise and self-denying. Only the action prescribed by scripture is auspicious, and all that is opposed to it is mere bondage of this mortal world, and therefore inauspicious. The person of equanimity, who neither loathes what is inauspicious, nor is attached to that which is auspicious, because for such a person, even that which had to be done has at last come to an end, is imbued with righteousness emancipated from doubt, and discerning. So such a person is enabled to disown all. This total relinquishment, coming along with accomplishment, is renunciation. Is there, we might be tempted to ask, any easier way? Krishna categorically denies the possibility. Nahi 
Since the abandonment of all action by an embodied being is impossible, the one who has given up the fruits of action is credited with having practiced relinquishment. Embodied beings does not imply only gross visible bodies. According to Krishna, the three properties of virtue or sattva, passion or rajas, and ignorance or tamas, all born out of nature, imprison the soul within the body. The soul is embodied only so long as these properties remain. So long he will have to pass from one body to another, for the properties that beget the body are still in existence. Since an embodied soul cannot eschew all action, it is said that one who has given up the fruits of action has mastered renunciation. Hence it is that it is imperative to do the prescribed deed and renounce its fruits, so long as the properties that make the body remain. If, on the other hand, actions are undertaken with some desire or the other, they do bear fruits. Anishtamishtam Mishrancha Trividham Karamada Halam Bhavatyatyaginam Pretya Natu Sanyasinam Kvachit Whereas the triple returns, good, bad, and mixed, of covetous people's actions, issue forth even after death, the actions of people who have renounced all do not ever bear any fruits. The deeds of avaricious persons produce consequences that arise even after death. These consequences indeed persist through endless births. But the actions of persons who have relinquished all, of true sannyasi, so-called because they have given up all their possessions, do not bear fruits at any time. This is complete renunciation, the highest stage of spiritual seeking. The examination of the outcome of good and bad deeds, and of their seizing at the point where all desire is annihilated, is thus concluded. Krishna then takes up the causes that effect righteous and unrighteous actions. Panchaitani Mahabaho Karanani Nibodhame Sankhe Kritante Proktani Siddhaye Sarvakarmana Learn well from me, O the mighty-armed Arjun, the five principles that Sankhya acknowledges as accomplishers of all action. 
अधिष्ठानम् तथा कर्ता करणंच पृथक्विधम् विविधाश्च पृथक्चेष्टा दैवम् चैवात्र पञ्चमम् In respect of this, there are the prime mover, the several agents, the varied endeavors, the sustaining power, and likewise the fifth means that is providence. The mind is the doer. Virtuous and evil inclinations are the agents. Performance of righteous action demands a predisposition to discernment non-attachment, tranquility, self-restraint, sacrifice, and constant meditation. But lust, anger, infatuation, aversion, and avarice are the agents that effect unrighteous deeds. There are then the manifold efforts, the endless desires, and the means. That aspiration begins to be fulfilled which is supported by means. And last of all, there is the fifth principle, providence or sanskar, the outcome of all that has happened to the soul in the past. This is borne out by Krishna. Karma-prārabhate naraha Nyāyam vā viparītam vā Panchaite tasya These are the five causes of whatever action a man accomplishes with his mind, speech, and body, either in accordance with or even in contravention of Scripture. Tatraivam satikartaram Atmanam Despite this, however, he who out of his immature judgment views the consummate detached self as the doer is dull-minded and he sees not. As the soul is identical with God, the pronouncement also implies that God does not act. This is the second time that the Yogeshwar has stressed the point. He said in chapter 5 that God neither acts himself nor impels others to act nor does he bring about even the association of actions. Then why do we say that everything is done by God? 
it is only because our minds are clouded by delusion. We just say whatever comes to our mind. However, as Krishna has affirmed, there are five causes of action. Yet the ignorant man, incapable of perceiving the reality, views the lone, godlike soul as the doer. He fails to realize that God does not perform any deed. Paradoxically, however, while saying all this, Krishna also girds up his loins for Arjun and assures him that he has just to play the part of an instrument, for he, Krishna, is the real doer, arbiter. What, after all, is the sage's import here? In truth, there is a line of gravity that separates God from nature. So long as the seeker is within the boundaries of nature, of the three properties, God does not act. While abiding close by the worshiper, he is yet only an onlooker. But when the seeker gets hold of the cherished goal with firm intentness, God begins to regulate his inner life. The seeker then breaks free from the gravity of nature and enters the realm of God. God ever stands by such a seeker, but he acts only for a worshiper such as this. So let us always meditate on him. Yasyanaham krito bhavo Buddhir yasyana lipyate Hatva pisa imam loka Nahanti nanibadhyate Though he may slay, the man who is liberated from conceit and whose mind is unsullied is neither a killer nor bound by his action. Rather than granting license to kill without any fear, this verse signifies that the truly liberated person acts as a mere instrument of the Supreme Spirit. Such a person may sometimes be compelled to do even violent and awesome deeds, like Arjun, but he undertakes them in a wholly detached and selfless spirit, as well as with the conviction that doing them is his bounden duty. So although such a liberated person slays from the worldly point of view, he does not really slay. In truth, however, one who dwells in constant awareness of God is of necessity disinclined to anything that is evil. Such a person is simply not tempted to destroy, for the world which tempts people to destroy no longer exists for him because of his total renunciation of the aggregate of all his deeds. Jnanam geyam parigyata Trividha karma chodana Karanam karma karteti Trividha karma sangraha 
whereas the way of securing knowledge, the worthwhile knowledge, and the knower constitute the threefold inspiration to action, the doer, the agents, and the action itself are the threefold constituents of action. Arjun is told that the impetus to action is derived from all-knowing seers, the mode of acquiring knowledge, and the object that is worthy of being acquired. Krishna has said earlier that he is the object worth knowing. The stimulus to action is derived only when there is a realized sage with perfect knowledge who can initiate the seeker into the way by which the desired knowledge can be obtained and when the seeker's eyes are fixed on his goal. Similarly, the store of action begins to grow by the coming together of the doer, dedication of mind, agents such as wisdom, disinterest in the material world, repose, and self-restraint by which the action is accomplished, and awareness of the action. It has been pointed out earlier that neither does the undertaking of action by the seeker after accomplishment have any purpose, nor is there any loss even in its abandonment. Yet he engages in action even then for the generation of virtuous powers in the hearts of those who are left behind. This is effected by the confluence of the doer, the agents, and the action itself. Knowledge, action, and the doer are also each of three kinds. Jnanam karma cha karta cha Tridhaiva guna bhedata Prochate guna sankhyane Yathava chrinutanyapi Listen to me well on how even knowledge and action and the doer have been graded into three kinds each in the Sankhya philosophy of properties, or gun. The next verse throws light upon the character of virtuous knowledge. O Arjun, you should know that knowledge as immaculate, sattvic, by which one perceives the reality of the indestructible God as an undivided entity in all divided beings. Such knowledge is direct perception with which the properties of nature come to an end. It marks the culmination of awareness. Let us now see knowledge of the second kind, or rajas. Prithak 
Know that knowledge as tainted by passion, by which one perceives divided entities in all separate beings. And know that knowledge as besmirched by ignorance, or tamas, which adheres to the body alone, as if it were the whole truth, and which is irrational, unfounded on truth, and petty. Devoid of wisdom and the required discipline to buttress it, this kind of knowledge, tamas, is worthless as it takes one away from awareness of God, who is the one and only reality. The following verses then recount the three kinds of action. Niyatam sangarahitam Aragadveshatakritam Aphalaprepsunakarma Yattat satvikamuchyate That action is said to be immaculate, which is ordained and embarked on with detachment by one who is free from infatuation as well as loathing and who does not aspire to any reward. The ordained action is none other than worship and meditation that lead the soul to God. Yattu kame psuna karma Sahankaren vapunaha Kriyate bahulayasam Tadraja samudaritam And that action is said to be of the nature of passion, which is strenuous and entered upon by one who covets rewards and is egotistic. This seeker also performs the ordained action, but what a great difference is made by the fact that he is desirous of rewards and possessed of vanity. So the action undertaken by him is of the character of moral blindness. Anubandham kshayam hiyusam 
ಅನವೇಕ್ಷ ಪೌರುಷಂ ಮೋಹಾದಾರಭ್ಯತೆ ಕರ್ಮ ಯತ್ತಾಮಸಮುಚ್ಚತೆ that action is said to be unenlightened which is taken up out of sheer ignorance and with disregard for outcome loss to oneself and injury to others as well as for one's own competence such action is bound to be reduced to nothingness at last and it is unquestionably not approved by scripture rather than action it is mere delusion let us now see the attributes of the doer mukta sango naham vadi drityutsahasamanvitah siddhya siddhyor nirvikarah that doer is said to be of immaculate nature who is free from attachment who does not indulge in arrogant speech and who is endowed with patience and vigor as well as unswayed by success and failure these are the attributes of the righteous doer and the action he undertakes is of course the same ordained action ragi karma phala prepsu lubdho hinsatmako shuchi that doer is said to be of the attribute of passion who is impulsive covetous of the fruits of action acquisitive pernicious vitiated and subject to joy and sorrow ಅಯುಕ್ತ ಪ್ರಾಕೃತ ಸ್ತೋ ನೈಷ್ಕೃತಿಕೋಲಸ ವಿಷಾದೀ ದೀರ್ಘಸೂತ್ರೀಚಾಮಸ ಉಚ್ಚತೆ that doer is said to be of the attribute of ignorance who is fickle uncouth vain devious spiteful dispirited lazy and procrastinating these are the attributes of the ignorant doer the scrutiny of the qualities of doers is concluded at this point and yogeshwar krishna now embarks on an examination of the attributes of judgment intellect resolve 
steadfastness, and felicity, happiness. Buddhair Bhedam Dhritesh Chaiva Gunatastrividham Shrinu Prochamanamasheshena Prithaktvena Dhananjaya Listen to me too, O Dhananjay, Arjun, on the threefold classification according to the properties of nature as I make them exhaustively and respectively of intellect, steadfastness, and happiness. Pravrittincha nivrittincha Karya karye bhaya bhaye Bandham mokshanchaya veti Buddhissa parthasatviki That intellect is immaculate, O Parth, which is aware of the essence of the way of inclination, as also of renunciation, of worthy and unworthy action, of fear and fearlessness, and of bondage and liberation. In other words, the righteous, morally good intellect is that which is aware of the distinction between the way that leads to God and the way to recurrent birth and death. Jaya dharma madharmancha Karyam cha karyam evacha Ayathavat prajanati Buddhissa partharajasi That intellect is of the nature of passion and moral blindness, O part, by which one cannot even know the righteous and the unrighteous, as well as what is worthy or unworthy of being done. Adharmam dharmamitiya Manyate tamasavrita Sarvarthan viparitamsha Buddhisapartamasi That intellect is of the nature of ignorance, O Parth which is enveloped in darkness and which apprehends the sinful as virtuous and views everything in a distorted way. In these verses 30 through 32, intellect is graded into three kinds. The intellect which is well aware of the action that has to be engaged in and the action that has to be shunned 
as well as of that which is fit or unfit to be done, is characterized by moral excellence. The intellect which has only a dim perception of the righteous and the unrighteous action, and which does not know the truth, is dominated by passion. The perverse intellect that deems the sinful as virtuous, the destructible as eternal, and the inauspicious as auspicious, is shrouded in the gloom of ignorance. The discussion of intellect is concluded here, and Krishna next takes up the three kinds of steadfastness. Dhritya-yaya-dharayate Manah-prane-ndriya-kriya Yoge-navya-bhicharinya that resolute steadfastness by which, O Parth, one governs through the practice of yoga, operations of the mind, the life breaths, and the senses, is immaculate. Yoga is the process of meditation whereas the coming into mind of any impulse other than the impulse to such contemplation is moral transgression. Straying of the mind is deviation from the path of virtue. The unwavering resolution with which a man rules over his mind, breath, and senses is therefore of the nature of goodness. Directing the mind, the vital breaths, and the senses towards the desired goal is the morally excellent fortitude. Yaya tu dharma ka martha Dritya dharaya terjunam Prasange na phalakangshi that steadfastness, O Parth, by which the avaricious man holds fast and acquisitively to obligations, wealth, and pleasure, is of the nature of passion and moral blindness. Firmness of will in this case is concerned primarily with the discharging of one's worldly duties, acquisition of wealth, and sensual pleasure, the three primary objects of material life, rather than with final liberation. The final end may be the same, but in this case the seeker aspires to fruits and desires something in return for his labor. Yaya Swapnam Bhayam Shokam Vishadam Madamevacha Navimunchati Durmedha Dritisapartha Tamasi 
and that steadfastness, O Parth, by which the evil-minded man declines to forsake sloth, fear, worry, grief, and also arrogance, is of the nature of ignorance. Next, Krishna considers the three types of happiness. Sukham Tvidani Trividham Srinume Bharatarashabha Abhyasadramate Yatra Dukhantanchanigachati Now listen to me, O oh, the best of Bharat, Arjun, on how even happiness, which one comes to dwell in by practice, and thus achieve the cessation of griefs, is also of three kinds. This happiness is that which the seeker attains to by spiritual discipline. He achieves it by concentrating his mind on the cherished goal, and this happiness is therefore a destroyer of griefs. Yattadagre vishamiva Pariname mritopamam Tatsukham satvikam proptam Atma buddhi prasadajam That happiness, which is at first like poison, but finally tastes like nectar, for it issues forth from the lucidity of an intellect that has realized the self, is of an impeccable nature. The happiness that is come by through spiritual exercise, concentration of mind on the desired end, and in which all griefs come to an end, is bitter like venom at the commencement of worship. Prahlad was hanged and Mira was poisoned. Sant Kabir has pointed out the difference between the pleasure-loving world that feasts and falls into unconscious slumber and himself who stays awake shedding tears of contrition. But although this happiness is like poison at the outset, at the end it is like nectar that confers the substance of immortality. Such happiness born out of a clear understanding of the self, is said to be pure. Vishayendriya Sanyoga Yattadagre Mritopamam Pariname Vishamiva Tatsukham Rajasam Smritam That happiness which springs from the association of the senses with their objects, and which is like nectar at the beginning, but like gall at the end, is said to be tainted with passion and moral blindness. 
The happiness obtained from the contact of the senses with their objects tastes like nectar in the course of enjoyment, but like poison at the end. For this kind of happiness leads to repeated birth and death. So such happiness is rightly said to be impassioned and afflicted with moral blindness. Yadagre chanubandhe cha Sukham mohanamatmanaha Nidralasya pramadotham Tattamasamudaritam That happiness which both initially and finally beguiles the self and which arises from slumber, lethargy, and negligence is said to be of the nature of ignorance. The happiness which both in the course of indulgence and subsequently deludes the soul lays one unconscious in the dark night of worldly life and which is born out of indolence and futile efforts is of the nature of ignorance. Krishna then proceeds to recount the scope of the properties of nature that ever pursue us. Sattvam prakriti jair muktam Yade There is no being, either on earth or among the dwellers of heaven, who is entirely free from the three properties born of nature. All beings, right from Brahma at the top to worms and insects at the lowest, are transient, mortal, and under the sway of the three properties, sattva, rajas, and tamas. Even heavenly beings, including the various external gods, are subject to the malady of these properties. Here, Yogeshwar Krishna has taken up the subject of external gods for the fourth time. That is, gods were spoken of in chapter 7, 9, and 17. All the statements so far made by Krishna imply that the gods are influenced by the three properties of nature. Those who worship such gods, in reality, worship that which is perishable and impermanent. In the third section of Srimad Bhagavat, while describing the meeting of nine Yogeshwars with the exalted sage Shukra, during the discourses, the sage Shukra said that for love between male and female, the Lord Shankar and his consort Parvati, for sound health, the Ashwani Kumars, the celestial physician twins, for victory, the Lord Indra, Lord God of Heaven, and for material riches, Kuber, God protector of wealth, these external gods are to be worshipped. Similarly, 
talking of various desires at the end, he gave the verdict that for fulfillment of all desires and for salvation, one shall worship the Lord Narain alone. Therefore, one shall remember and call to mind the Omnipresent One, and for such accomplishment the only available means is to take refuge in an accomplished teacher, asking sincere questions and rendering service. The devilish and divine treasures are two traits of the inner realm, out of which the divine treasures enable one to have the great vision of the Supreme Being. Hence, they are called divine, but yet are within the influence of the three properties of nature. When the three properties of nature are pacified, the seeker also shall experience that absolute peace within. After this, that immortal yogi shall have no more duties left to perform. The question of the organization of men into four classes, or varn, that was initiated much earlier is now reintroduced. Is one's class determined by birth, or is it the name of the inner ability gained from one's action? Brahmana Kshatriya Visham Shudranam Chaparantapa Karmani Pravibhaktani Swabhava Prabhavair Gunai The duties of Brahman Kshatriya, Vaishya, as also of Shudra, are determined by properties that are born out of their nature. If a man's nature is made up of the property of goodness, there is inner purity along with the ability to meditate and worship. If the dominating property is that of ignorance, lethargy, sleep, and insanity are the outcome, and the attempted action is at their level. The capacity of one's natural property is his varn, his character. Similarly, a partial combination of goodness and passion constitute the Kshatriya class, whereas a partial combination of the property of ignorance and that of passion constitutes the Vaishya class. This is the fourth time when Yogeshwar Krishna has taken up the issue. He named Kshatriya in chapter 2 and said that there is nothing more propitious for a Kshatriya than a righteous war, in verse 31. In chapter 3, he said that although inferior in merit, one's own natural calling, Dharma, is the best, and even meeting with death while upholding it results in good, whereas an obligation or duty other than one's own, even though well observed, generates nothing but fear and dread. In verse 35. In chapter 4, then, he indicated that he is the creator of the four classes in verse 13. Does he mean by this that he has divided men into four rigid castes determined by birth? His answer to the question is an emphatic no, and he asserts that he has but divided action into four categories according to their inherent properties. The innate property of a being or object is a measure, 
a yardstick. So the division of mankind into four varn is only a division of the one and same action into four stages according to the motivating properties. In Krishna's words, action is the mode of attaining to the one inexpressible God. The conduct that takes one to God is worship, which commences in faith in the desired end. So meditation on the Supreme Being is the one true action that Krishna has divided into four steps in his system of varn. Now, how are we to know to which property and stage we belong? This is what Krishna turns to in the following verses. Shamodamastapashaucham Shantirarjavamevacha Gyanam Vigyanam Astikyam Brahma Karma Swabhavajam Self-restraint, subduing of the senses, innocence, continence, mercy, uprightness, piety, true knowledge, and direct perception of divinity are the Brahmin's province, born out of his nature. Restraining the mind, curbing the senses, flawless purity, mortification of mind, speech, and body to mold them in tune with the cherished goal, forgiveness, all-pervading righteousness, staunch faith in the one aimed at goal, consciousness of the Supreme Being, the awakening in the realm of the heart of the exhortations coming from God, and the ability to act according to them, are all a Brahmin's obligations that arise from his own nature. It might be said, therefore, that the seeker is a Brahmin when all these merits are present in him, and the commenced action is an integral part of his nature. Shauryam tejo dhritir daksham Yudhe chapya palayanam Valor, majesty, dexterity, unwillingness to retreat in battle, charity, and sovereignty are the natural province of a kshatriya. Bravery, achievement of divine glory, forbearance, competence in meditation, skill in action, disinclination to run away from struggle with the material world, relinquishment of all, and domination of all feelings by a feeling for the Supreme Being. These are all activities born out. Krishi Gaurakshavanijam 
वैश्यकर्म स्वभावजम परिचर्यात्मकम कर्म शूद्रस्यापि स्वभावजम Farming, protection of cows, the senses, and commerce are the natural province of a Vaishya, whereas rendering service is the natural calling of a Shudra. Agriculture, rearing of cattle, and commerce are duties in keeping with the nature of a Vaishya. Why only preservation of cows? Should we slaughter buffaloes? Is it wrong to keep goats? There is nothing at all like all of this. In the ancient Vedic text, the word go, or cow, was used to refer to the senses. So protection of, quote, cows, here means care of the senses. The senses are protected by discernment, non-attachment, restraint, and steadfastness. They are... On the other hand, riven and rendered feeble by lust, wrath, avarice, and attachment. Spiritual acquisition is the only true wealth. This is our one true asset, and once it has been earned, it stays on with us forever. Gradual amassing of this wealth in the course of our struggle with the world of matter or nature is trade. The acquisition of knowledge which is the most precious of all riches, is commerce. And what is meant by the word farming? The body is like a piece of earth. The seeds which are sown in it sprout in the form of sanskar, the merits of action, the force that is built up by all the actions in previous lives. Arjun is told that the seed, the initial impulse of selfless action, is never destroyed. Vaishya is the third step of the ordained action, of contemplation of the Supreme Being, and preservation of the seeds of divine meditation that are sown in this patch of earth, the body, while at the same time opposing hostile impulses, is agriculture. As Goswami Tulsidas has said, whereas the wise husbandsman farms well and with care, they who are of deficient wisdom are insensible and arrogant. To protect the senses thus, to store spiritual wealth amidst the skirmishes of nature, and to always strengthen contemplation of the ultimate essence, these meanings of trade, commerce, farming, and agriculture, these are the province of Vaishya. According to Krishna, the omnipresent God is the final outcome of yajna. The devout souls who partake of this fruit are emancipated from all sins, and it is the seeds of this action that are sown by the meditative process. To protect this germ is true husbandry. In Vedic writings, food means the supreme spirit. God is the only real sustenance, the food. The soul is fully placated at the completion of the exercise of contemplation and never again knows any craving. Once the exercise has been brought to successful conclusion, 
the soul is freed from the cycle of birth and death. To go ahead sowing the seeds of this food is true husbandry. To serve those who have attained to a higher spiritual status, revered men of accomplishment, this is the duty of Shudra. Rather than meaning base or low, Shudra means one with deficient knowledge. It is the seeker at the lowest stage who is a Shudra. It is but proper that this initiate worshiper should begin his quest with rendering service. Service to men of accomplishment will in the course of time generate nobler impulses in him, and he will thus gradually move up to the higher Vaishya, Kshatriya, and Brahman stages. And ultimately he will go beyond Varn, the properties of nature, and become one with God. Character is a dynamic entity. There is change in an individual's Varn along with changes in his character. So in fact, Varn are the four, excellent, good, medium and low, stages, the four steps, low and high, which seekers who tread the path of action have to climb. This is so because the action in question is only one, the ordained action. The only way to final attainment, according to Krishna, is that the worshiper should begin his journey in keeping with the attributes of his own nature. Sve Sve Karmanya Bhirataha Saunsiddhim Labhate Naraha Svakarmanirata Siddhim Commitment to his own inborn duty brings man to the ultimate accomplishment, and you should listen to me on how a man achieves perfection through dedication to his innate calling. The perfection that is ultimately achieved is realization of God. Krishna told Arjuna earlier, also, that he would reach this final goal by engaging in action, the real prescribed action. Yata pravrittir bhutana yena sarvamidam tatam by adoration of that God who has created all beings and who pervades the whole universe, through the undertaking of his natural calling, man attains to final accomplishment. The seeker achieves final consummation through performance of his native duties. It is therefore essential that he should constantly keep his mind fixed on God, adore Him, and proceed on his way step by step. Instead of making any gain, a junior student even loses whatever he has if he sits in a senior class. 
So the law is that one should climb step by step. It was said in the sixth verse of this chapter that yagya, charity, and penance ought to be undertaken after abandonment of attachment and the fruits of action. Now, stressing the same point, Krishna says again that even a partially enlightened man ought to begin from the same point, from self-surrender to God. श्रेयान स्वधर्मो विगुणः परधर्मात् स्वनुष्ठितात् स्वभावनियतम् कर्म कुरुवन्नापनोति किल्बिशम् Even though unmeritorious, one's own native calling is superior to the office of others, for a man carrying out his natural obligation does not bring sin upon himself. Although inferior, one's own obligation is better than even the well-performed duties of others. A man absorbed in performing a task that is determined by his own nature does not incur sin insofar as he is not subjected to the endless cycle of entrances and exits, of birth and death. It is quite often that worshippers begin to feel disenchanted with the service they are rendering. They look at the more accomplished seekers who are absorbed in meditation and grow envious of the honor that is accorded them because of their merits. So novices at once fall to imitating. According to Krishna, however, Imitation or envy can be of no avail. The final accomplishment is only by dedication to one's own native calling, not by its abandonment. Sahajam karma kaunteya Sadosham apinatyaje One's innate duty ought not to be forsaken, O son of Kunti, even if it is blemished, because all actions are impaired by some flaw or the other, as fire is shrouded by smoke. It is but expected that the actions of the novice seeker are flawed, for their doer is yet far from perfection. But even these actions must not be given up. Moreover, there is no action that is unimpeachable, and action has to be undertaken even by one who belongs to the Brahmin class. Imperfections, the obscuring pall of nature, are there until there is steady devotion. They come to an end only when the action natural to a Brahman is dissipated in God. But what are the attributes of the accomplisher at the point where action is no longer of any avail? Asakta buddhis sarvatra 
जितात्मा विगत स्पृह नैष्कर्म्य सिद्धि परमा he whose intellect is aloof all round, who is without desire, and who has conquered his mind, attains to the ultimate state that transcends all action through renunciation. Renunciation is, as we have already seen, complete self-abnegation. It is the condition in which the seeker abandons whatever he has, and only then does he reach the point when no further action is needed. Renunciation and attainment of the supreme state of actionlessness are indeed synonymous. The yogi who has reached the state of actionlessness attains to the supreme being. Siddhim prapto yatha brahma Tathapnoti nibodhame Samase naiva kaunteya Nishtha jnanasyayapara Learn in brief from me, O son of Kunti, of how one who is immaculate achieves realization of the Supreme Being, which represents the culmination of knowledge. The following verses expound that way. Buddhya Blessed with a pure intellect, firmly in command of the self, with objects of sensual gratification like sound forsaken, with both fondness and revulsion destroyed. Vivikta sevi lagvashi Yatavakkayamanasaha Dhyana yoga paronit Dwelling in seclusion, eating frugally, subdued in mind, speech, and body, incessantly given to the yoga of meditation, firmly resigned. Ahankaram balam darpam 
कामं क्रोधं परिग्रहं विमुच्च निर्मम शांतो ब्रह्म भूयाय कल्पते Giving up conceit, arrogance of power, yearning, ill humor, and acquisitiveness, devoid of attachment, and in possession of a mind at repose, a man is worthy of becoming one with God. It is further said of such a worshiper, Brahma Bhuta Prasannatma Nashochati Nakangshati Samasarveshu Bhuteshu Madhbhaktim Labhate Param In this serene tempered man, who views all beings equally, who abides intently in the Supreme Being, neither grieving over nor hankering after anything, there is fostered a faith in me that transcends all else. Now faith is at the stage where an outcome can ensue from it, namely, in the form of God-realization. Through his transcendental faith, he knows my essence well, what my reach is, and having thus known my essence, he is at once united with me. The Supreme Being is perceived at the moment of attainment, and no sooner has this perception come about than the worshipper finds his own soul blessed with the attributes of God himself, that his soul is, like God, indestructible, immortal, eternal, ineffable, and universal. When the maladies of vanity, brute power, lust, wrath, arrogance, and infatuation that force one down into the ravines of nature are rendered feeble, and virtues such as discernment, non-attachment, self-restraint, firmness of will, abiding in solitude, and meditation that lead one to God, are fully developed and active, the seeker is equipped to be united with the Supreme Being. It is this ability that is called transcendental faith, and it is by this that the worshiper comes to apprehend the ultimate reality. He then knows what God is, and, knowing His divine glories, he is at once merged with Him. Putting it differently, Brahm, reality, God, the Supreme Spirit, and the Self 
are all substitutes for each other. Knowing any one of them, we come to know them all. This is the final accomplishment, the final liberation, the final goal. So the Gita is unambiguous in its view that in both the way of knowledge or discernment, or the way of renunciation, and the way of selfless action, the ordained deed, meditation, has to be entered upon and accomplished for the attainment of the supreme state of actionlessness. The importance of worship and meditation for the worshiper who has renounced all has been stressed so far. And now, by introducing the idea of devotion, the same is said for the yogi who undertakes selfless action. Sarva karmanya pisada Kurvano madhyapashraya Mat prasadadavapnoti Shashvatam padamavyayam Although engaged in action wholeheartedly, one who finds refuge in me achieves the everlasting, indestructible, final bliss. The deed to be performed is the same, the ordained action, the exercise of yajna, and to gain it there must be self-surrender. Chetasa sarva karmani Mai sanyasya matparaha Buddhi yoga mupashritya Machittasatatam bhava Earnestly resigning all your deeds to me, finding shelter in me, and embracing the yoga of knowledge, you should ever fix your mind on me. Arjun is counseled to sincerely yield all his actions, whatever he is capable of doing, to Krishna, to rest in his mercy rather than depend upon his own prowess, to find shelter in Krishna, to adopt the attitude of yoga, and always bring his mind to bear on him. Yoga means completion, unity, that which brings griefs to an end and provides access to God. Its mode also is a unity, the exercise of yajna, which is founded on restraint of the attaching impulses of the mind and senses, the regulation of the incoming and outgoing breath, and on meditation. Its outcome, finally, also, is a unity with the eternal God. This is further elaborated in the next verse. Prasadatarishasi 
अथ चेतमहकार न श्रोष्यसी विनाश्यसी Ever resting on me, you will be saved from all afflictions and gain deliverance, but you shall be destroyed if out of arrogance you do not pay heed to my words. Thus, always focusing his mind on Krishna, Arjun will conquer the citadels of the mind and the senses. As Goswami Tulsidas has put it, Even celestial beings seated at the portals of these forts obstinately keep the shutters ajar as the breezes of carnal pleasure blow in. The mind and the senses at the core are the impregnable redoubts. But Arjun can storm them by aiming his thoughts at God alone. On the other hand, however, he shall be undone and deprived of the ultimate good. if out of vanity he does not pay heed to krishna's words this point is now reaffirmed yadahankaram ashritya nayotsya iti manyase mithyesha vyavasayaste Your egotistic resolve not to fight is surely mistaken, for your nature will compel you to take up arms in the war. Svabhavajenakaunteya निबद्धस्वेन Bound by your natural calling, even against your resolve, O son of Kunti, You will have to undertake the deed you are reluctant to do because of your self-deception. Arjun's innate disinclination to retreat from the battle with nature will compel him to set upon the task before him. The subject is concluded with this, and Krishna next speaks on the dwelling of God. ईश्वरसर्वूताजुनतिष्ठति ब्राह्मयन सर्वूता Propelling all living things that bestride a body, which is but a contrivance, by his maya, O Arjun, God abides in the hearts of all beings. But if God lives in our hearts and is close to us, why are we ignorant of his presence? This is so because the contraptions we call body 
are driven by the power of maya, the universal ignorance or illusion, by virtue of which we consider the unreal universe as real and distinct from the Supreme Spirit. So this physical mechanism is a grave impediment, and it takes us round endlessly through one birth after another. Where, then, can we find shelter or refuge? Tameva sharanam gacha Sarvabhavena bharata Tat prasadat param shantim Sthanam prapsyasishashvatam Seek refuge with all your heart, O Bharat Arjun, in that God by whose grace you will attain to repose and the everlasting, ultimate bliss. So if we have to meditate, we should do it within the realm of the heart. If we know this and yet seek for God in a temple, mosque, or church, we but waste our time. Notwithstanding this, however, as it was said earlier also, these places of formal worship have their importance for seekers with inadequate awareness. The heart is the true abode of God. Itite jnanamakhyatam Guihat guihataram Thus have I imparted to you the knowledge which is the most mysterious of all abstruse learning. So reflect well on the whole of it, and then you may do as you wish. The wisdom that Krishna has accorded is the truth. It marks the sphere where the seeker has to make his quest, and it is also the point of attainment. Yet the harsh fact is that God is commonly not perceptible. Krishna now deliberates upon the way out of this difficulty. Sarva Shrinu me paramam vachaha Ishto si me dridhamiti Tato vakshamite hitam Listen yet again to my most secret words, indeed felicitous, that I am going to speak to you because you are the dearest to me. Krishna endeavors once more to enlighten Arjuna. God always stands by the seeker, for he is so dear to him. Arjuna is beloved of Krishna, and any benediction that the Lord bestows upon him cannot be too much. He will incessantly exert himself for the sake of his devotee. 
But what is the blessed revelation that Krishna is going to make to Arjuna? Manmana bhava madbhakto Madhyaji maam namaskuru Maame vaishyasi satyante Pratijane priyosime I give you my sincere pledge, because you are so dear to me, that you must attain to me if you keep me in mind, adore me, worship me, and bow in obeisance to me. Arjun was exhorted earlier to seek refuge in the God that dwells in the realm of the heart, and now he is prompted to find shelter under Krishna. He is also told that in order to find this sanctuary, he has to listen again to the Lord's most esoteric words. Does not Krishna intend to communicate by this that finding shelter under a noble teacher preceptor is indispensable for the seeker who has taken to the spiritual path? Krishna, himself a Yogeshwar, then enlightens Arjuna on the way of true self-surrender. Sarvadharman parityaj Maamekam sharanam vraj Aham tva sarvapapebhyo Mokshaishami maashuchaha Grieve not, for I shall free you from all sins if you abandon all other obligations and seek refuge in me alone. Arjuna is counseled that he has to rid himself of concern about what category of doer he is, whether Brahman or Kshatriya or Vaishya or Shudra, and look for shelter under Krishna alone. By doing so, he will be absolved of all iniquities and afflictions. The accomplished teacher preceptor takes it upon himself to effect the gradual elevation of the pupil to ever more refined spiritual states and his release from all sins if, instead of worrying about his position on the path of action, the pupil single-mindedly seeks refuge in his mentor and looks up to no one else but his accomplished teacher preceptor. All sages have said the same. When a holy writing is rendered, it may appear that it is for all, but it is truly secret teaching, secret undoubtedly because it is permitted only to those who are spiritually equipped to study and profit by it. Our June is such a deserving pupil, and so it is that Krishna instructs him so earnestly. Now Krishna himself elaborates the merits of the worthy pupil. Idam te natapaskaya Nabhaktaya kadachana 
नुश्रूषवेवाचम This Gita, which has been articulated for you, must never be made known to one who is bereft of penance, devotion, and of willingness to listen, as also to one who speaks ill of me. Krishna was a realized sage, and along with adorers, he must also have faced some slanderers. The Gita is not for people who speak maliciously of God. But then, to whom should this sacred knowledge be made known? Ya imam paramam guyam Madbhakteshvabhidhasyati Bhaktim mai param kritva Mame vaishyatya saushaya The one who, with firm devotion to me, imparts this most secret teaching to my worshippers, will doubtlessly attain to me. And then Krishna speaks about the one who disseminates the sacred knowledge. Nachatasman manusheshu Kaschin me priyakrittamaha Bhavitana chame tasman Neither is there among mankind any doer who is dearer to me than this man, nor will there be any in the world who is dearer to me than him. The man who enlightens Krishna's devotees, souls who adhere to the Lord, is the most beloved of him, because he is the only source of benediction, the only highway that leads one to God. He is the one who teaches men to go along the right path. imam <laughs> Dharmyam samvadamavayoho Jnana yajjena te naham Ishtasyamiti me matihi And it is my belief that I shall have been worshipped through the yajna of knowledge by one who makes a thorough study of this sacred dialogue between us. The yajna of knowledge is that, the outcome of which is wisdom. The nature of this wisdom has been elaborated earlier. This wisdom is the awareness that is acquired along with direct perception of God. And it is with such wisdom, such awareness, that the dedicated and industrious disciple of the Gita will adore Krishna. 
This is something of which the Lord is firmly assured. Even he will be freed from sins who just hears the Gita with devoutness and without any ill will and he will secure the worlds of the righteous. Even hearing the teachings of the Gita with faith and without any carping is enough to elevate one to a superior mode of existence, for by this also its sacred precepts will be inculcated in the mind. Krishna has thus, in verses 67 to 71 of the present chapter, said that imparting of the teachings of the Gita to the deserving is as vital as withholding them from the undeserving. Since even hearing the secret teaching of the Gita motivates the worshipper to the required endeavor, the one who just hears it will also surely attain to Krishna. As for the one who propagates the scripture, no one else is dearer to the Lord than this man. The man who studies the Gita worships Krishna by the yagya of knowledge. True knowledge is what issues forth from the process called yagya. In the verses under consideration, therefore, the Lord has pointed out the benefits of study, dissemination, and hearing of the Gita. Now, at the end, he asks Arjun if he has understood and assimilated his words. Cut. Chide tachrutam parth Tvayaika grena chetasa Kachidagyana sammoha Pranashtaste dhananjaya Have you, O Parth, listened intently to my words, and, O Dananjay, is your delusion born out of ignorance dispelled? Nashto moha smritir labdha Tvat prasadan maya chuta Sthito smigata sandeha Karishyevachanam tava Arjun said, Since my ignorance has been dispelled by your grace, O Achut, 
and I have recovered discernment, I am free from doubt and shall follow your precepts. Arjun here states, Because of your grace, my passion is destroyed. I have regained my memory. I am consistent being bereft of doubts and am ever ready to obey your orders. Now whereas Arjun was perplexed at the time of reviewing both the armies at the beginning of the Gita, to find his kith and kin therein. He prayed, Govinda, how can we be happy after annihilation of our own relatives? Family tradition will be destroyed because of such a war. There will be scarcity of obsequial offerings like rice cakes and so on to the departed ancestors. Mongrelization of castes will take place. We, being wise, are yet ready to commit sin. Why do not we find a way out of committing these sins? Let the armed Karava kill me, an unarmed man, in the war, and that death is glorious. Govinda, I am not going to wage war. Saying thus, Arjun sat down at the back of his chariot. Thus, in the Gita, Arjun in fact put forward in front of Yogeshwar Krishna a series of big and small questions. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 7, Please, will you tell me that practice of worship through which I can attain to the absolute good? In chapter 2, verse 54, What are the attributes of an enlightened sage? In verse 1 of chapter 3, If in your view the way of knowledge is superior, then why do you compel me to do these terrible actions? In verse 36 of chapter 3, Even without wishing, under whose guidance does a man commit sin? In verse 4 of chapter 4, Your birth is of recent times, whereas the son was born a long time back. Then how can I believe that you, Krishna, taught yoga to the son in the distant past, at the time of the beginning of this calc. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Sometimes you praise renunciation, the way of knowledge, and yet at other times you support the way of selfless action. Please tell me, which one of these, finally, is the one by which I can attain to the absolute good? In verse 35 of chapter 6, The mind is very fickle, with slack efforts, what would be his lot? In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, Govinda, Krishna, who is it, that supreme being, whom you have described? What is the religious knowledge? What are lords of gods and lords of being? Who is the lord of sacrifice in this body? What is that action? How do you come to be known at the end of time? Thus, Arjun put forward seven questions. In verse 17 of chapter 10, Arjun has evinced curiosity, asking, While meditating incessantly, through what feelings do I call you to mind, to remember you? In verse 4 of chapter 11, he prayed and submitted, I long to see the splendors that have been described by you. In verse 1 of chapter 12, 
who is the superior possessor of yog among the devotees who worship you well through unvacillating attentiveness and those who worship the imperishable, unmanifest Supreme Being? In verse 21 of chapter 14, a man who has surpassed the three natural properties is liberated. And how can a man surpass these three properties? In verse 1 of chapter 17, What would be the fate of a person who engaged in yajna with dedication and yet does not follow the procedures as laid down by the scriptures? And in verse 1 of chapter 18, O oh, the mighty-armed, I yearn to learn separately and individually everything about the nature of relinquishment and renunciation. Thus, throughout the Gita, Arjuna continued to put forward questions. The esoteric secrets which could not be asked by him were revealed by Lord Krishna himself. As soon as Arjuna's doubts were dispelled, he was freed from asking questions and said, Govinda, now I am ever ready to obey your instructions. In truth, the questions raised by Arjuna were for the benefit of all mankind and not for him alone. Without having the answers to these questions, no seeker can progress forward on the path of the highest good. Therefore, to enable a man to obey an enlightened sage teacher and to progress on the path of the highest good, it is necessary that one should learn the complete teachings of the Gita. Arjuna was convinced and satisfied. In chapter 11, after having revealed his cosmic form, Krishna said in the 54th verse, O Arjuna, a worshiper can directly know this form of mine acquire its essence, and even become one with it by total and unswerving dedication. And just now he has asked him whether he is rid of his delusion. Arjuna replies that his ignorance is allayed and that his understanding is restored. Now he will act at Krishna's behest. Arjuna's liberation should come along with this realization. He has indeed become whatever he had to be. But scripture is meant for posterity, and the Gita is here for all of us to avail ourselves of. Thus, the divine message of Yogeshwar Krishna was concluded. At this moment, Sanjay again spoke. Vasudevasya Parthasya Chamahatmanaha Sauvadamimamashrausham Adbhutam Romaharshanam Sanjay said, Thus have I heard the mysterious and sublime dialogue of Vasudev Krishna and the sage-like Arjuna. Arjuna is portrayed as a man with a noble soul. He is a yogi, a seeker, a sage rather than an archer set to kill. 
But how has Sanjay been enabled to hear the dialogue between Krishna and the saintly Arjun? Vyāsa-prasādā-chritavān Etad-guyya-maham param Yogam Yogeshwarat Krishna Sakshat Kathayatah Swayam It is by the blessing of the most revered Vyas that I have heard this transcendental, most mysterious yoga enunciated directly by the Lord of Yoga, Krishna himself. Sanjay regards Krishna as a master of yoga, one who is a yogi himself, and who is also endowed with the gift of imparting yoga to others. Rajan samsmritya samsmritya sauvada mima madhutam keshavarjuna punyam the recollection of the felicitous and marvelous colloquy between Keshav Krishna and Arjun transports me, O King Dhritarashtra, to sublime joy time after time. We too can experience Sanjay's bliss if we remember the sacred dialogue with perfect contentment. Sanjay then recalls the Lord's miraculous bearing and speaks of it. Tatcha saunsmritya saunsmritya Rupa matyadbhutam hare Vismayo me mahan rajan Rishyamicha punah punah Recalling the amazing visage of the Lord again and again, O King, I am lost in wonder and ecstasy over and over. Sanjay's rapture can be ours also, if we incessantly keep in our minds the aspect of the cherished end. That brings us to the last verse of the Gita, in which Sanjay states his final conclusion. Good 
good fortune, conquest, splendor, and steadfast wisdom abide, wherever are Lord Krishna and the noble archer Arjun. Such is my conviction. Intent contemplation and firm restraint of the senses are Arjun's bow, the legendary Gandiv. So it is that Arjun is a sage who meditates with equanimity. So wherever Yogeshwar Krishna and he are, there too dwell the triumph after which there is no defeat, the magnificence of God, and the firmness of resolve that enables one to be constant in this inconstant world. Such is the well-deliberated judgment of Sanjay, of the seer who is gifted with celestial vision. The great archer Arjun is no longer amidst us, but were steadfast wisdom and the glory that comes with spiritual conquest for him alone? The Gita is a dramatization of an historical event that belonged to a certain time, namely the age that is known as Dwapar. This does not mean, however, that Arjun's realization of the truth of God came to an end with the seizing of his time. Yogeshwar Krishna has assured us repeatedly that he abides in the realm of the heart. He exists within all of us. He is also within you. Arjun is a symbol of affectionate devotion, which is but another name of the mind's inclination and dedication to the cherished goal. If a worshipper is endowed with such devotion, perpetual triumph against the demeaning properties of nature is assured. With such devotion, there must always necessarily be steadfast wisdom. Rather than being confined to a certain place, time, or individual, these attainments are universal, forever and for all. So long as beings exist, God must dwell in their hearts, and the soul must impatiently hunger for the Supreme Being, and he who is affectionately devoted to God will attain to Arjun's status. Every one of us can, therefore, aspire hopefully to the ultimate bliss of direct perception of God. Conclusion At the beginning of the 18th, the concluding chapter of the Gita, Arjun wishes to be enlightened on the similarity, as well as the distinction, between relinquishment and renunciation. Krishna has pronounced a judgment, which is that yagya, penance and charity, must never be forsaken, for they bring deliverance to men of discernment. So fostering them, while also giving up unrighteous impulses that are inimical to them, is true renunciation. Such renunciation is perfect, but relinquishment with a desire for some profit in exchange is tainted by passion and moral blindness, and it is definitely evil when the prescribed deed is forsaken out of self-deception. Renunciation is the crowning point of resignation. Performance of the prescribed task and the rapture that results from meditation are indeed virtuous, while sensual pleasure is an outcome of infatuation. And the pleasure in which there is no prospect whatsoever of the ultimate union with God undoubtedly issues forth from ignorance. This chapter also sheds light on the nature of renunciation. 
The resigning of all one has is renunciation. Mere putting on of a certain kind of attire is not renunciation. Absorption in the ordained deed, while leading a life of seclusion, with a due appraisal of one's own strength, or with a sense of self-surrender, is inescapable. Renunciation is the name of the abandonment of all action, along with consummation, and so but a synonym for the final deliverance. That absolution is the crowning point of renunciation. Thus concludes the 18th chapter in the Upanishad of Srimad Bhagavad Gita on the knowledge of the Supreme Spirit, the science of yoga, and the dialogue between Krishna and Arjun entitled Sanyas Yoga or The Yoga of Renunciation. Thus concludes Swami Agaranand's exposition of the 18th chapter in Yatart Gita. Hari Om Tatsat.